This week on the show, we have the FreeBSD fourth quarter of 2020 status report for you, and we dive into that very deeply. We also show you a must-have security tool from OpenBSD, Bastille support redirection and persistence. The FreeBSD wall display computer is what we also show you. The etymology of command line tools in Unix, a GhostBSD 21.0.15 release notes is what we read, and a bit more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 388, Must Have Security Tool, recorded on the 27th of January 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, fellow home dwellers, to our fresh episode recorded just for you. Well, and the other ones as well. Um, we have headlines as always for you, and it starts with the FreeBSD fourth quarter status report of 2020. Yep. Uh, so this is basically everything that happened at the end of 2020 uh, in the FreeBSD project, and there was a lot. Hmm. Uh, there's an update from the FreeBSD Foundation, including their work to sponsor uh, a bunch of different projects, including the OpenZFS said standard support, improvements to the Linux Ulator for application compatibility, the LLDB target stuff that we talked about a couple episodes ago, uh, setting up more test lab infrastructure, work on Wi-Fi, and a bunch of other things. Plus, uh, they have a rundown here of a bunch of the uh, co-op students and stuff that they worked on, including uh, stuff for code coverage, the package tool, updating Comp uh, compilation problems around the skein stuff used in ZFS, uh, applying capsicum to utilities like sort, and working on Game of Trees to have a liberally licensed uh, Git client uh, for the base system. Plus a bunch of work on improving the interaction with OBS, the software we're using to make this episode today, and getting that better on FreeBSD, and just in general improving native audio support in Firefox and user space audio for other programs and just generally making audio on FreeBSD better and lots more going on, including, you know, people that work for the foundation also help with the Git working group and the security team and lots of other things happening. Then there's the continuing integration and quality assurance uh, stuff also sponsored by the foundation. And then their efforts to do FreeBSD advocacy and education. Then the FreeBSD release engineering team is in the process of spinning out the FreeBSD 13 release, uh, which is now at alpha one, but it'll be at alpha two by the time this comes out, or even alpha three. Mm, exciting. Uh, anyway, that's happening. The FreeBSD cluster admin team did a whole bunch of work, including deploying uh, new package servers that uh, will serve packages faster uh, based on having, you know, lots of SSDs instead of spinning disks, uh, and also some new package builders. Uh, for doing X-Bruns and also setting up some new uh, ARM64 based package builders uh, so that we'll have packages for ARM64 as well. Nice. There's a whole separate report from the continuous integration team, uh, including their work on being able to build jobs out of Git uh, now that the source is in Git. Uh, the ports team has lots of stuff going on. The number of ports now has crossed 40,000 if you count the different flavors. So, you know, if you have a a Python 3.6 and 3.7 version of a port or PHP 
seven three and seven or yeah seven four or something like that of ports in total that's forty one thousand five hundred different applications there are currently twenty five hundred prs open uh six hundred and twenty five which are not assigned to somebody uh and in the quarter they managed to do eight thousand seven hundred and fifteen commits uh by one hundred and sixty four different people and uh four hundred and twenty commits to the quarterly branch by fifty nine different people uh, they changed a couple of other things. They switched the default SVG, libsvg2 library, to one based on Rust uh, for platforms that support it or not for the ones that don't. Uh, updated Mono, updated GCC, Ruby default version switched to 2.7, Samba was updated to 4.12, Firefox updated to 84, and the ESR to 78.6, uh, Chromium to 87, uh, Qt to 5.15, uh, FXE, uh, XFCE to 4.16, etc. There's also a, a report here from my project there to have the office hours on a regular basis. We've not done an amazing job, but we've had a bunch of office hours. Actually, there's uh, one later today when we're recording this. So you've missed the Beehive one, but go check out the video from it anyway. But they host, there was uh, the core team had one in a time conducive to Asia and Australia covering topics like the transition to Git and recruiting for teams and course to-do list. The Git transition team also hosted uh, an office hours to answer questions about the transition to Git. And the third session was hosted by Peter Green and John Baldwin about Beehive, uh, some of the recent developments and answering some questions. And that one was successful enough that they're doing another one today as we're recording this. Uh, so you, I imagine the video for that will be up on YouTube by the time this comes out. But the project is looking for volunteers to host future office hours sessions because, well, I can't do them all. <laughs> so if you would like to host an office hours uh, or even just have a suggestion for a topic, uh, do reach out. And uh, if you're a developer or if you're already a member of the FreeBSD project, you can just slot in a time on the wiki uh, and we will help you get it set up and, and make it happen. Yep, and this work is sponsored by Scale Engine, so you provide uh, the bandwidth and the, the streaming <clears throat> platform for it, and so on. Yeah. Cool, that's appreciated. Then there were a bunch of uh, projects. So the project to get the GPL code removed from base uh, has moving along, including uh, GDB has been completely removed in flavor in favor of LLDB. Uh, GNU grep has been replaced with BSD grep, and lib GNU regex has been removed. The following components are the only ones not to be uh, claimed uh, with some replacement, uh, which are Dialog and GCOV, which is uh, the kernel code coverage thing and is optional, so it's less of a big deal. So the big thing is Dialog uh, is GPL licensed and uh, there's not really a great alternative there. And then the other remaining component is Diff3 and that one's kind of partially complete, but BAPT is pretty busy. So if someone is interested in finishing that uh, or even just helping with it, definitely reach out to BAPT. Then there's a whole report from the Git Migration Working Group. Uh, so if you want to know more about how that went, it's all there. And there's a list of people to reach out to if you have more questions. Then Edward has an update here on the Linux compatibility layer updates. Generally, it's gotten to the point where you can run uh, Ubuntu apps in a, a Linux jail nicely now. So that's pretty good. Yep, that's also good work uh, because a lot of people are looking forward to running newer Linux versions in their jails for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, uh, so they used uh, Linux Chromium and were able to watch Netflix and listen to Spotify. Ah, that's the reason. So okay, that's... you mentioned Netflix. That's probably the reason. <laughs> well, it, it mentions it here in the... Ah, uh, okay. 
in the report. Good, uh, good reason there. Yep. And then uh, Camille Pajarowski uh, has his report on the LLDB debugger stuff, but we covered that uh, recently. NetApp has a report here. Uh, they've been pursuing a project to upstream a lot of the fixes um, that they have in their tree, get those up into FreeBSD so they'll have uh, a smaller diff against basic FreeBSD. Uh, so they're trying to upstream everything that's uh, a diff in their tree that would be useful upstream and get that upstream. Uh, and they expect that to continue all through 2021 as well. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Rick Macklem has another update on NFS over TLS. Uh, so the new um, kern TLS option that Netflix added for doing the uh, encryption in the kernel is also can be used with NFS now and uh, allow you to do NFS over TLS. For testing systems, you used to have to enable kern TLS manually, but uh, with some prodding from me, we have that option turned on by default for FreeBSD 13. Uh, so while I don't think the NFS over TLS will be done in time for FreeBSD 13, all the infrastructure for it will be in place in time uh, so that in 13.1, we'll be able to have that NFS with encryption. Oh yeah, that would be nice. Uh, Gordon Birdling has also been working on uh, synchronizing our version of OpenBSM, uh, the auditing code for FreeBSD with the upstream. And he says here, hopefully Apple will release the source for Big Sur in time for FreeBSD 13. Uh, I know that they've done that in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so hopefully that will help that come along. Uh, updates to the tool chain. We now have LLVM version 11 happening. The people at Semihaf have updated the uh, Elastic Networking Driver uh, for AWS in FreeBSD. Bjorn Zeeb has been working on the Intel wireless stuff to get support for 11AC for faster Wi-Fi. Yes, great. Conrad and the Random Number Generator group have been working on uh, some updates. They said, in since FreeBSD 11, the default random implementation is based on Fortuna, designed by Ferguson and Steyer. At a high level, Fortuna accumulates entropy into a series of pools and reseeds a single generator from some of these pools according to some criteria. In 2019, uh, Ferguson, who was at Microsoft at the time, published a white paper on the design of the Windows 10 random number generator called Fenestra 10. It's a random implementation based on that Windows 10 design. The Fenestra 10 design is similar to Fortuna, so it's probably most interesting to describe their differences. It has a per CPU generator seed for the root generator, whereas Fortuna only has a single root generator. This, chain, uh, this change eliminates any lock contention between the random readers running on multiple different cores. And the generators in the Fenestra 10 form a tree from the root uh, random number generator. When read, uh, when read, generators effectively check if their parent generator has been seeded with newer entropy. If so, the child generator reseeds themselves uh, before serving the read operation. This is uh, integrated with Arc4 Random as well as in user space with the Arc4 Random version there. The Fenestra 10 generators are buffered. Uh, requests smaller than some arbitrary threshold, currently 128 bytes, are served from the buffer. Bytes read from the buffer are securely erased uh, once they are consumed, and the buffer is refreshed if the request consumes more bytes than were available in the buffer. This amortizes the cost of rekeying and generating output from a uh, cryptographic CTR mode cipher, which is especially slow with AES. Uh, there's some other important differences, but if you're interested in, you know, the pseudo-random number generators, you should read the paper. Uh, it's not that long and it's pretty accessible. Uh, for more information on the FreeBSD implementation, check out the commit messages, especially they mention here, commit uh, 366620. So that uh, Fenestra 10 implementation is available in current, but is disabled by default, uh, where the default remains at Fortuna. 
At this time, uh, we must set the random finesse to X option in your custom kernel configuration and rebuild your kernel to use the new design. There are no known bugs or weaknesses relative to Fortuna implementation, but they would like some additional design review, uh, then implementation review and more testing uh, and additional entropy sources. We could use implementation for some of the sources described in the paper for both Fortuna and Fenestra 10. Uh, in particular, we're missing a jitter entropy source. Then there's an update on uh, PF performance. Uh, Christoph has here, uh, looks like about 10 uh, reviews, many of which I think are committed now, but weren't at the time of the quarterly report. He says the performance of PF is not as good as it could be. Some investigation with the uh, HWPMC tooling eventually pointed to very poor cache behavior. The longest latency cache miss event was uh, very informative. Turns out that this is due to uh, PF doing packet and byte counting uh, within the states and the rules and the interfaces. The PF code took the very straightforward approach of having a simple unsigned 64-bit integer variable and incrementing it for every packet. The downside of this is that when multiple cores are doing this simultaneously, the CPU ends up having to write this to memory very often, which slows down packet processing greatly. Uh, happily, there's a counter framework in the FreeBSD kernel that's designed for this exact situation. One additional complication is that PF uses the same uh, structure definition in its internal data as it uses uh, for configuration from user space. So to avoid breaking user space, these data packets have been, uh, or data structures have been decoupled. That is where PF rules used to use both uh, set rules via the IOCTL interface, and to evaluate rules while processing packets, we now use the PF rules only for configuration. And the new PFK rule structure is used uh, in the kernel side for evaluating the packets. This allows us to change the kernel structure to swap out that unsigned 64 bin uh, for uh, the counter type without affecting user space. And uh, especially on multi-core machines, this makes a big difference. And then, uh, Alexander Chernenko, uh, who's Melliferu at FreeBSD, also did a bunch of changes uh, to the IP routing lookup implementation. It basically adds a FIB lookup framework, follow, uh, allowing to attach custom IP lookup algorithms to any routing table on the fly. Uh, it allows us to be more performant and efficient lookup algorithms dynamically selected based on the number of routes in the routing table. So, you know, if you have a small number, you maybe use the default, but if you have a large number, you can select these more uh, exotic ones, including uh, bsearch4, which is a lockless binary search, radix4 lockless, which works good up with uh, less than a thousand routes. Uh, so the bsearch4 works great with less than 16 routes. radix4 lockless works with less than a thousand routes. The uh, radix one is the default. And then there's now the dbdk's lpm4, uh, which is the lockless data structure optimized for very large fibs uh, and works great with many routes. And he has some results of you know what it looks like uh so for example with ipv4 if you have eight routes uh the radix4 does about 20 million packets a second the lockless one goes up to 25 million packets a second but if you only have eight routes the bsearch4 one rather than the base radix4 uh gives you 69 million packets a second uh, and the dbdk one gives 67 million whereas if you have 700,000 routes so basically like a, a bgp full feed then uh radix lockless was only giving you 3.3 million packets a second, whereas the DBDK one will allow you to do 46 million packets a second. So three or 46, which one do you want? <laughs> Easy choice. So uh, if you have a large view, uh, it makes quite a big difference. And so looking at forwarding, if you have a small routing base, going down to the bsearch4 algorithm gives you usually about a 10 to 15% performance improvement. And if you have a full view, uh, the DBDK stuff 
uh, looks to be at least a 20 to 25% improvement. He's also been working on scaling for uh, multipath support. Scott Long worked on the Thunderbolt 3 and USB 4 stacks uh, and still expects that driver to land sometime in early 2021. Uh, Alan Summers worked on vectored IO or vectored asynchronous IO. So the POSIX AIO is a facility for asynchronously doing IO to files and devices. So instead of running a read and that code doesn't return until you've finished it, you can say, you know, go do this read. Meanwhile, the program can do something else and then it gets notified when uh, the read is finished. FreeBSD's implementation is efficient, especially when writing uh, to disk files, but a long-standing defect of the standard API is the lack of a vectored function. That is, there is no asynchronous equivalent to pwriteV or pReadV. A common uh, workaround is to use the LIO listIO interface instead. However, there are several drawbacks to that. It's more efficient for the programmer. Uh, it might return early with only a subset of the operation complete and requires the uh, more total syscalls, which you know might be the thing you're trying to avoid. So this quarter, he added two new syscalls, AIO write v and AIO read v. They work just like the non-vectored counterparts, but they take an array of IOVEX. So you can write a whole bunch of separate buffers instead of having to make one contiguous buffer. Uh, and you do it with fewer syscalls, which will uh, improve performance, especially with a lot of small write. Then there's the update to uh, Z standard for ZFS, but I've talked about that so many times we can skip that one. <laughs> A uh, bunch of updates to the ARM64 platform. You know, in the interest of getting ARM64 up to a tier one, there's been a bunch of uh, efforts in order getting uh, FreeBSD update updates working for it. There are, you know, some small tweaks needed to some of the build scripts uh, and things like that. And that means that we'll have security updates for ARM64 as part of FreeBSD 13. There's also the OpenSSL crypto driver, which accelerates SHA-1 and SHA-2 and work on the crypto dev and crypto interfaces. Uh, also, my company did some work and landed uh, AES GCM acceleration for ARM V8 as well. Uh, so that's happened after the quarter, but as also there. So yes, uh, ARM64 is looking pretty good to get up to tier one. There's also an update on Risk Five. Alan Summers also worked on, or had a, mentored a student who worked on a dual stack ping command. So instead of having ping and ping six, you could have one command that could do both. You know, as a research tool, it didn't provide MPV. Uh, so the original ping six is a research tool that didn't have v4 support, but it's you know become practical and people use it all the time. But the ping and ping six split has been a perennial complaint. It's annoying that two separate commands are needed, even though they almost do exactly the same thing. So Alan Summers managed to merge the work done by Jan Sukan, uh, who did the Google Summer Code project, which merged the two commands into one. So now ping can handle either protocol based on the dash four or dash six switches or based on the format of the target. And so we now have one ping command and it has just a hard link to ping six so that you know your old finger memory will still work or any tools that depend on the ping six tool will still work. But uh, now you have one ping command that does both. Also big updates to KDE, uh, an update from the office team about you know LibreOffice and similar things. A bunch of work on ports for non-x86 architectures. So um, for example, ARM64, PowerPC64, uh, and so on. The FreeBSD Foundation now has two new ARM64 builder boxes, which have replaced the badly aging, poorly performing uh, ThunderX boxes. So now that work and some others, the uh, AMD or the ARM64 ports uh, have now get started to get much better. And also Pyotr Kubaj has been working on the PowerPC stuff to get those ports working as well. 
Uh, and there's also been work on testing ports for RISC V, uh, 64-bit, and getting that going as well. Um, Python 2.7 continues to age out. You know, as of January 2020, Python 2.7 has been end of life for over a year and is slowly being, or well, is quickly being ripped out of the tree. There's not that much that's left now. Yeah, there's a lot in here. There's just a big report. Yeah. And then there's uh, an update from the translation people who've been doing a lot of work. Uh, they now have translations in 11 languages, including one new one. And there are now 116 people helping with translations, which is up from 16 people as of uh, Q1 of 2020. So over the course of three quarters of 2020, we've added 16, 69 new translators. So it definitely goes to show the new translation system is working a lot better than the old one. Yep. Uh, there's a update here uh, from Sergio Caravilla talking about the cutover to the new documentation format, uh, which has happened. Uh, so if you're paying attention, you might have noticed that the docs in the FreeBSD doc repo are now all in uh, ASCII doc, uh, which is like Markdown uh, and very easy for people to edit instead of the terrible uh, doc book stuff. There's still some rough edges. Uh, we need to fix some URLs and so on, but uh, things are definitely better. Oh, and uh, Alan Summers also wrote a Prometheus exporter for NFS stat, which I had noticed that. That's super awesome. Yep, there was some... I actually need to send that to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yep, there was some uh, third-party projects at the bottom. So... Um... Oh, yes, uh, there was a big one here. Um, yes, thank you to uh, Vincent uh, for working on getting FreeBSD's ARM64 version working under VMware ESXi ARM uh, so that you can actually run VMs uh, using ESXi ARM. He got booting from the CD working better, uh, updated the, uh, got the virtual USB controllers updated, uh, including the keyboard and mouse stuff, fixing para-virtualized uh, SCSI storage. And mostly it was adding a bunch of the VMware emulation stuff to the default kernel, uh, which, you know, it just previously it had only been included in the AMD64 kernel. Things that are still need a bit more love are booting from the para-virtualized SCSI driver, um, the Xorg SVGA driver, the virtual machine communication interface, and uh, using more than eight uh, virtual CPUs. Uh, Bastille BSD, which is a jail manager, has their update, uh, including some new subcommands and links to everything. If you're interested in that, check it out. There's also an update from Cherry BSD, uh, which is you know has a lot of interesting stuff coming with ARM's new uh, Morello processor coming. That's going to use this. Uh, it suddenly is even more interesting than it was before. Uh, then there's also the embedded lab project that John Mark Gurney is working on. Dan has some information about uh, fresh ports and it dealing with the switch to Git that's coming up. Uh, Hello Systems, which is making a nice uh, pre-configured desktop of FreeBSD. So if you're interested in that, they have some links and ways to help out. Uh, and as well as uh, the KAS uh, Beehive driver and uh, work from the Puppet team as well to get uh, to Puppet Server 7. Yep. So it's been a pretty busy quarter and a lot of people uh, spent their time doing work and that's uh, certainly appreciated. And so we're looking forward to the next quarterly report. Uh, but in the meantime, you should all read this and maybe try out some of the stuff and help with testing and reporting uh, anything you find. Yes. I think the biggest thing about the quarterly report is that it includes a list of people to contact if you want to help and a list of specific things that they're looking for for help. So if you ever wonder, how do I get started contributing to FreeBSD? It's a great place to start. Uh, look through that report, find something that interests you, uh, and 
reach out to the people and how to help. Yep. And so we have uh, the other items here in our headlines is blocking spammers and abusive IPs with PF bad host in an OpenBSD way, a must-have security tool. That's what the OpenBSD journal undeadly.org writes in their black hole diversion joy department. So they write that as an introduction, the PF bad hosts is a very practical, robust and stable lightweight security script for network servers. It's compatible with BSD based operating systems like OpenFreeNet Dragonfly BSD and macOS. It prevents potentially bad IP addresses that could possibly attack your servers and waste your bandwidth and fill your log files by blocking all those IPs contacting your server. Therefore, it makes your server network resources lighter and the locks or important services running on your server become simpler, more readable and efficient. But how does it all do this? By periodically pulling IP addresses from well-known and well-respected spammer IP databases where bad IP addresses are frequently locked. Uh, where dangerous IPs reported by internet users are stored. Then they add all those collected IP addresses to the PF firewall as an IP table uh, that is then already active on your server, hopefully, and through that way prevents their access to your server. So sort of works with the, PS, uh, the PF firewall. So um, from then the block lists are pulled from quality trusted sources like Spamhouse, Firehall, Emerging threats and binary defense blocks lists are used as they are popular, regularly updated, and uh, on the internet's most egregious offender uh, are listed there. Uh, you can also configure your cron job to send an email containing the output of each PF bad host run so that you get a nice list of how many addresses were blocked already or some of them who were uh, deleted after a certain amount of time. Uh, in this example, they had like 620 million addresses <laughs> blocked. Uh, but yeah, this is typical internet traffic. So there's an installation guide at the bottom. Uh, so in 10 simple steps, you get this kind of protection for your system. Uh, so first you create a new user on your system called underscore pfbadhost as an example. So this applies to OpenBSD. Um, then this user should be created with default shells of no login, of course. No one wants to log in. It's just the user running the service. Uh, the home folder should be set to var empty and no password specifies because no one can log in anyway. Then you download the pfbadhost script and then install it with the appropriate permissions. Uh, next, you create a couple of required files. So a pfbadhost.txt, a uh, log file for it, and a couple of um, directories for um, pfbadhost logs. Yeah, so these are the logs that get periodically rotated. Then as the next step, you give the user pfbadhost a strict do as permission for the exact commands the script needs to run as super user. So it cannot do much more than that, but that's all it requires. Uh, unlike sudo, all users must be explicitly granted permission to use do as, even the root users, so they show how to do that. Then uh, you add the next couple lines to your PFs configuration that is located in your etcpf.conf file. And so you create a table there, the pfbadhosts, that is persisting etcpfbadhosts.txt, and then you create a block rule so that each egress of these addresses will get blocked. and this is applying to in and out going traffic. Then number seven, run the bad hosts, uh, PF bad host script as user underscore PF bad hosts using the dash capital O OpenBSD argument. And with that, you can then reload your PF rule set to apply these changes. And then for good measure, run the PF bad host script once more to get the latest 
updates to those lists. And finally, top, uh, step 10, you edit your pfmat hosts, uses crontab to run this periodically. So you always have fresh tables of the bad people. So there's a couple of things at the bottom. Uh, they have a couple of overviews of features, uh, like fetching lists, using alternative lists. So you can also make a list of your own neighbors, <laughs> network neighbors, or you can export your lists as well. So there's a way to share these and plenty of other interesting stuff. So you should... Yeah, like the ability to block uh, specific AS numbers and things like that too. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And Hail Mary mitigation. specific countries. Yeah. So that you... Um, can rest assured that no one can get into your system that shouldn't or overload your uh, your system with or just writes to your uh, log files too much. Yep. Uh, and to either specifically allow or specifically block uh, Tor nodes or even uh, separately filter out exit nodes. Ah, yes. So that you can support these people or um, say, oh, no, they're not getting any kind of networking access here. Yeah, it depends. Uh, what you're trying to do you know if you're running e-commerce maybe you don't want uh people hiding their source address and if you're doing other stuff maybe you want to specifically allow it yeah for your private machines that could be a different list and for your uh company's office machines <laughs> that's the the other list <laughs> Next up, we have a post from the Bastille BSD people that we talked about a minute ago. They have a port redirection and persistence uh, how-to, I guess. So this is how to redirect specific TCP and UDP ports uh, from your host into the container. So Bastille is an open source system for automating the deployment and management of containerized applications using FreeBSD. So Bastille supports redirect or RDR ports from the host system into the target container. This port redirection is commonly used when running uh, internet services like a web server, DNS server, email, or something else. Uh, any service you want to make public outside of your cluster uh, will likely require port redirection, uh, You know, especially if you don't have multiple public IP addresses. So uh, requirements, port redirection is required for inbound uh, connectivity on the Bastille Zero loopback device, uh, so any containers using that, or shared interface containers that is handling using a combination of three things. So you have your pf.com configured with a line uh, to have a redirect anchor, uh, your external interface is defined somewhere, and the Bastille Zero interface or your shared external interface is used by that container. So they have uh, links to some other guides on getting started or the Bastille, how Bastille networking works. But once you're into it, then you say, redirecting ports for inbound access to a containerized service can be done manually using the redirect subcommand or in an automated fashion using a Bastille template. The three examples below will demonstrate redirecting, for example, host port 2200, so 2200, to become port 22 on the container. So, you, you know, you can forward uh, a different port on the outside so that it doesn't interfere with the regular SSH on the host. Uh, or a simple example of, you know, port 53, you're not using it on the host, so you can forward it directly to the container uh, or doing it for another one. So they have uh, some examples there. So just running Bastille, uh, RDR for redirect, the name of the jail, then TCP or UDP, the host port number, and then the uh, container port number. So, and those don't have to match. Cool. Uh, you can also do uh, Bastille RDR, the name of the jail list, and it'll give you a list of all the redirects, or clear to delete the redirects. Redirection rules are persistent by default. That means that any redirect rules uh, applied to a target will be written as part of the rdr.conf uh, and will be reloaded when the jail is reloaded. Or So they'll persist to a reboot and so on. Uh, redirecting 
ports uh, from the host system to an internal network is simple with the redirect command. Um, this redirection can also be accomplished as part of a template, so it can happen automatically. Defining port redirection rules also allows external access to your internal Bestial Zero network on a per host basis. While port redirection uh, should not be needed between containers on your uh, Bestial Zero interface, it is required to have access from the outside. Mm. Nice. This is cool. Yeah. They've, uh, you know, wrapped up a lot of the complexity there and made it pretty simple. Yeah. So people have one tool to use and not uh, jump between that and their firewall configuration. Uh, then next we have a FreeBSD wall display computer how-to sort of for you. So uh, over at uh, block.tyke.nu, uh, they write that they've recently added a wall mount 30-inch monitor for Grafana in their home. They can highly recommend doing the same, especially in a world where more work from home is becoming the norm. Yes. Um, having metrics visible all at all times can be incredibly helpful in spotting trends and issues. And this is the reason we all have wall-mounted Grafanas in our workplaces. Since we're all going to be working from home for the foreseeable future, it makes sense to have visible metrics at home as well. And so they recommend a monitor stand, And um, but this is up to you. So basically one or two monitors um, should do the trick here. And so they had to, before the summer physically mounted the screen using a um, one of these monitor mounts uh, over and under two monitor stands so that one is above the other and not next to the to the well left and right uh, they then considered uh, which computer to use it for ideally something they already had lying around and of course something with enough power to run grafana dashboards without choking and so their first attempt was the odroid c2 with ubuntu um, they had originally lying this around because it used to be used as a media center with kodi but this seemed like a good choice Back then, it seems it can move a 1080p video without choking, uh, so it should be able to render a, new, a few Grafana dashboards, right? The Odroid C2 is an AM Logic S905 SoC with a Cortex-A53 ARMv8 64-bit CPU, has four cores and two gigs of memory. Uh, then it also supports eMMC storage, which is nice and faster alternative to the SD cards used in many of the Raspberry Pi sites computers that exist nowadays. Uh, they tried to figure out whether it was possible to run FreeBSD on that, but the ARM wiki page seems to say that 64-bit ARM support is still being worked on. Uh, uh, so they thought it was... Actually, the 64-bit ARM support is quite good. Yeah, it's quite good. So try it out for yourself. Uh, yes, okay. This this page they found is very old and that really does need to be... Ah, so that's probably why. Uh, but then they did a second attempt with the Raspberry Pi 3B Plus with Raspbian. So because the reason was... They got freezes on Ubuntu, the browser kept crashing and freezing, so that wasn't an option, so they tried the second attempt. Uh, with Raspbian and Noobs, uh, they got to the point where, um, well, the Raspberry Pi had only one gigabytes of memory, uh, but much more than previous Pis, so only half of the Odroid C2. Um, but they still performed at the same, uh, like the Odroid C2. It didn't work at all with Firefox. With Chromium, it was okay with a single tap or two, but after 12 to 24 hours, it would stop working. Mm. Third time is the charm, a knock with FreeBSD. So last, they uh, finally got around to taking another whack at it. Um, no more beating around the bush. They were going to buy something with enough power and then some. So they picked up the Intel NUC uh, 8i7beh that was in stock. And so this has two Kingston 60 gigabytes DDR4 memory sticks, non-ECC RAM, so the NUCs are delivered as a kit without RAM and storage, and a Samsung 870 QVO, uh, one terabyte SSD. 
D with SADA. And that was easily assembled enough. So four screws and a couple of minutes later, the RAM and the SSDs were there. And the NUC post revealed it found all 32 gigs of memory and all the SSDs. So previous installation was also straightforward enough with the install a USB stick. And so with a quick package install, you do the install of all the components like Xorg, Slim, Fluxbox and Firefox. And then they have to uh, configure X, of course, and they provide the specifics for the NUC here and the whole D message for the people who want to build this as well. And they also show the, uh, the build world that they had to use, but this is pretty straightforward. Oh, yes, to get the, the DRM, right? Yeah, the i915KMS, they compiled themselves, but that's fairly straightforward given their instructions. And then they did a bit of the slim configuration for the display manager uh, and a bit of Fluxbox configuration. Of course, you can put in your own uh, display manager of choice. They also have a section on the VNC configuration to connect to this thing without hooking up a uh, uh, keyboard. And for the, there's also an unclutter section. So for that, you install the unclutter package and then you can uh, have uncluttered <laughs> output here for your Fluxbox. Uh, there's a bit of extra configuration for the Firefox for going automatically to full screen or remembering tabs that they had previously open. So I think this whole blog post is a good start into your own wall-mounted display. Yeah, I, I remember doing something similar with my old TV when I got a new one. And it, you know, we were like, well, I have this dashboard and we'll show, you know, current traffic levels and a bunch of stuff uh we used it for a while but then we ended up not really getting around to finish using yeah well i like these uh approaches with the raspberries because they themselves don't pull too much uh watt hours and so it's only the display that's oh, driving the the nux are pretty low power too right yeah but uh, I, I use compared... one for my media center and your face is coming from the other one right now <laughs> <laughs> okay i move uh, around so yeah there's a little nuck and it feeds into the HDMI capture device on my main PC here. And that's how we do the podcast. Oh. Yeah, so uh, there's plenty of opportunities, especially with the video conferencing. It's good to have a second display. Yep. Uh, so next up, we have an interesting uh, graphic here, the etymology of command line tools. Uh, so the first one is awk, the command line text manipulation utility and programming language. Awk is an acronym uh, using the first letters of each of the creator's surnames. So Alfred Eho. Peter Weinberger and Brian Kernigan. It is pronounced Auk, like the seabird of the uh, weird bird family and features on the book of the Auk programming language. It looks kind of like a penguin, but it's not a penguin. It's an Auk. Uh, cat, the Unix uh, command utility cat uh, that can be can join together files or concatenate them to link together in a chain or series. The word concatenate comes from the Latin concatenare, meaning to link together. Uh, from con for together and catenary uh, for chain. The command line web tool and library curl, C-U-R-L, that can transfer data to and from a server is a combination of the words client and URL for universal, or sorry, uniform resource locator. Although curl uh, also works as a recursive acronym for curl, the URL request library. Creator Daniel Stenberg said, while this is awesome, it was actually not the original thought. <laughs> That's what we call a backronym. Or you, either where it happened after or you started by picking a good acronym and then finding some words that happened to fit it. So Emacs, the text editor, is short for editing macros. Stallman, who worked on the early Emacs at the AI laboratory at MIT, said, I wanted the new editor 
to have a single letter uh, abbreviation and the letter E was one uh, that wasn't in use. So the, the finger utility, the Unix uh, command finger that displays information about users logged into a host uh, was named after the act of pointing. Creator Les Ernest got the idea from watching colleagues run their fingers down a list of IDs on the computer screen to find out who was logged in. Finger may stem from the Proto-Indo-European word meaning five, because that's how many fingers you have. The fortune command prints random quotes taking its name from fortune cookies. It first appeared in version seven of Unix, inspired by the cookies containing a paper prophecy served at Chinese restaurants in the United States and other Western countries. Uh, fortune comes from the Latin fortuna, meaning fate or luck. The Unix command line utility grep can search plain text files for patterns, is an acronym for global regular expression print. The program was written by Unix designer Ken Thompson, who named it after the command G slash RE slash P uh, that was used in the original Unix text editor, ed. So the G means global, means search the whole file rather than just the, the line I'm on. Then RE is the regular expression. And then slash P will print the results. Whereas, you know, uh, you could have other flags to say, replace the results or something else. Obviously the man command uh, used to invoke reference documentation uh, is short for manual page. The word manual comes from the Latin manuale, uh, meaning a handbook stemming from the original word. The Proto-Indo-European root man actually means hand, which makes sense. So ping, let's see what they said about this one. The network utility ping that uh, tests the connectivity between two devices takes its name from the sound that sonar makes. Ping creator Mike Moose uh, said it was inspired by the principle of echolocation. The word ping is imitative of a short, high-pitched metallic ringing sound, originally referred to as uh, the sound of gunfire from the 1800s. Just one ping was silly. Yes, I, uh, yes, <laughs> exactly. Hunt for Red October. But um, it's a lot better than somebody tried to backronyme it as the uh, packet internet uh, groper something or something. Grepper. I forget. It was so, it was just like, no, that's a terrible backronym. You should feel bad and <laughs> stop telling people that. Almost done. Anyway, sudo, the Unix command sudo that allows users to run programs uh, with security privileges is a concatenation of super user or su uh, and do. The first edition of the Unix manual printed in 1971 noted that the su command allows users to become the super user who has all sorts of marvelous powers hmm. like the uh, the way they phrase that the unix uh, command utility char that can save multiple files into an archive is short for tape archiver so it's it's funny because tar is used less for tapes than other things nowadays hmm. but uh yeah tar is for tape archiver uh, there's a non-tape archiver just called ar which we talked about on a previous episode uh the name derives from when a unix admins would back up files on physical tapes the save file was called the tarball. Play on the fact that the files are rolled together like a sticky blob of tar. Uh, the word tar comes from the Old English taru, meaning tar or resin, which is from the original Proto-Indo-European derwo, which means tree. Mm. And lastly, vim. The ubiquitous text editor for Unix is a contraction of vi improved, uh, which itself is a clone of vi the editor written by Bill Joy in 1976. VI is an acronym for Visual Interface. It is created to be uh, Interface for EX, which was the uh, Joy's improved version of ED, 
the ed short for editor, the original text editor by Ken Thompson. So Ed became X and then got a visual interface called VI and then somebody made VI improved and called it Vim. <laughs> yep, so that's the history. Okay, nice one. We have also the GhostBSD 21015 release notes for you. Although there's now GhostBSD 210120 out, but this is just a bug fix release, so we read the uh, 210115 release, no release notes to you. So the GhostBSD project writes that they're happy to announce the availability of this new release. Uh, the new ISO comes with a cleanup of packages that includes removing of LibreOffice and Telegram from the default selections. Uh, they did this to bring the ZFS RW live file systems to run without problems on the four gigabytes of RAM machines uh, and also removed the UFS full disk option from the installer. Users can still, of course, use custom partitions to set up UFS partitions, but they discourage that. They have also fixed the next buttons restriction in a custom partition related uh, to some bug that people reported and fixed the missing default locale setup and added the default setup for Linux Steam. Not to forget, this ISO includes the kernel, user land, and numerous application updates. Uh, they list a couple of issues and features completed, uh, like the removal of slides from the GBI install.py. Uh, they fixed the restriction related to the next button in the partition PI that we mentioned earlier. Uh, they updated the supports of video drivers, always a appreciated to get fresh drivers, remove support for the full UFS supports from the installer, and the GhostBSD common setting package is not needed anymore, so they removed that. A software station got added, they removed the policy kit settings from ISO to HD, a couple of other removals. Uh, they also, and a yeah. whole set of changes around Refined, which is the uh, uh, EFI boot manager. Ah, yes, so that is easier to... Um, you know, run on UEFI system. Works nicely for dual booting, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, and they removed the LibreOffice uh, default packages because probably space restrictions. Right, we mentioned that at the top, yeah. that uh, LibreOffice and Telegram got removed to make sure that it works uh, in a four gig of RAM situation. Next up, we have a, a great thing here. Uh, this is uh, some kind of interview or conversation uh, with Brian Kernigan about the birth of Unix. Oh, nice. So when you work on a computer, there are many things that you take for granted, like the operating system, programming languages, but all of that had to come from somewhere. So in the late 60s and early 70s, that somewhere was Bell Labs, and the operating system they were building was Unix. Uh, and this is oh, a good 45-plus minute talk uh, with Kernighan with about all kinds of great stuff. And they have a full text transcript as well as, uh, I think there's a video up here. Yeah, looks like they have, ah, they have an audio or a full transcript, which is great. Mm -hmm. Yep. So for the history people and the people who want to know where this all came from, uh, this is a good source. Speaking of sources, before we go into our feedback and questions section, we should mention our sponsor Tarsnap, because upon Tarsnap, which is the online backup for the truly paranoids, you can get the full sources and inspect it before using it or compiling it yourself if you want. Go to tarsnap.com and sign up, create an account. That way you can start uh, making backups. So the backups are done locally on your disk first by checking all the data that you want to uh, back up, checking it for any unique new blocks, then compressing all of that, then removing any excess stuff that is uh, to duplicate or deduplicated. And then it's encrypted locally, still all happening on your disk. And once it's encrypted, it's much smaller than the original data, depending on the data type, of course. Then this encrypted data is uploaded to Tarsnap servers, which reside on 
AWS. And there, no one can make heads and tails what's in there because it's encrypted and you're the only person holding the backup key. And in case you have a disaster or just want your data from two weeks back or two years, no matter, uh, you can download this again using the Tarsnap client. And if you have the key, then you can also unencrypt it and have all the files back that you originally backed up. Pricing is very simple. Uh, you just pay for the bytes of storage and the bytes of bandwidth that you use. There are no other fees. There's no fixed cost or monthly minimum. Uh, so you can be like me and and put some money in and un, end up only using, you know, 45 cents a month worth of usage. And it works great. Yeah. There's plenty of clients available for Tarsnap. So if you really want to GUI, then of course there's uh, ways to give you that. But um, there's plenty of stuff you can do completely on the command line, like the tar tool, which is built on and uses many of the similar functionalities. So the BSDs, the Linuxes, the macOSs, SIGWIN or the Windows subsystem for Windows all can use Tarsnap. So there's no excuse anymore to not use Tarsnap and making backups today, backup early, backup often. Yep. So it seems that uh, we've actually kind of run over on time. Uh, so we're going to have to delay these uh, feedback questions for another episode. Ah. Uh, but thanks for joining us this week in an already overly long episode. <laughs> so we had lots to talk about. Yeah. So, but definitely uh, stay tuned for the next episode because this is just a cliffhanger of sorts. Yep. Uh, so check back next week and we'll uh, answer some more questions, but do. Uh, remember to send us your questions if you have them uh and uh that way we'll be able to keep answering them yep it's feedback at bsdnow.tv and we're also uh while we record this we are on twitch twitch.tv slash bsdnow or on twitter twitter.com slash bsdnow 